Uh, my name is, is Doug. I'm one of the pastors on staff. I'm so grateful to be with you today. Uh, pastor Mark, our senior pastor, is um, out of town on vacation, on a much-needed vacation. Uh, him and Terry are going to see some NASCAR races or something. I don't know. Um, he likes that stuff. Um, yeah. Thank you. Um, so you guys may know Pastor Mark well. Um, if you know anything about Pastor Mark, you, you know that he genuinely loves people. Um, that's something that I can absolutely say about Mark. He, he legitimately and genuinely loves people, especially you guys in this church. Um, but there's some things you might not know about Pastor Mark. I have the unique privilege of working with him each and every single week, and so I see things that you know you guys just don't get to see. And and you know I could talk about you know like things like you know the really dramatic tan line he has around his ankles um, from riding his bike all over the place or you know the fact that a 52 year old man has an entire drawer full of fruit snacks in his office um, but I'm not going to talk about those things um, instead what I want to talk about is, is a, a character of Mark which is his faithfulness um, Mark is faithful in his preparation and his teaching of the word of God each and every week and you guys don't get to see that you get to hear it, but you don't get to see the process that I get to see and that me and him get to go through each and every week. And he really is faithful in that process. I was trying to think of an analogy um, to share with you of what, what it's like to teach and prepare a message every single week because it can be a little bit draining. So this is what I came up with. It's like going to an all-you-can-eat buffet and eating absolutely everything in the buffet. And then after you ingest all of that stuff, you have to digest it for yourself. And then later, by the end of the week, you have to remake that meal in smaller portions, three perfectly presented courses that you pray everybody's going to like, you think it's going to taste good, and then you'd hope that they all would get full. That's a, it's a little bit challenging. It could wear on you doing that each and every single week. But Mark doesn't do it with, with uh, begrudgingly. He doesn't do it with sadness on his face. He does it with joy because he genuinely wants you guys to hear the word of God and to be full on the word of God. And I know that that from Pastor Mark and I wanted you to know that as well. Now with that being said, uh, Mark, I think this is the one that's being recorded. I'll take my payment in large denominations. Um, um, if you didn't notice this morning, um, I, I do have the privilege of working with our youth here at The Rock. And so this morning, um, since I got the opportunity to preach for you guys, we decided that we pulled the youth band up here. And then we decided, hey, why don't we just keep going? So we kicked all the mature people out and uh, put in all of our youth. So if you didn't notice when you were coming in, all of the normal people you used to see were replaced with teenagers. So um, if you guys would stand up real quick, we just want to say thank you for stepping up. That's some of them. Thank you. Um, our youth is just as much a part of this church as anybody else. It's a vital, vital importance that they be loved on and cared for and viewed that way. And um, seeing them serve this morning just brought joy to my heart, and they're so grateful to do it to serve you guys. So if you get a chance to say hi to them and talk to them, you will be blessed in doing so. They're just as much as encouragement to you as you will be to them. Um, I love working with our youth. I feel like I know they're your kids, but I, I sometimes question that because I feel like they're all my kids. I have many of them. Um, I love them so much, except for Jill. Uh. <laughs> I do that like every time. Jill always, yeah, sorry. I had to do it. <laughs> now that I did that, um, let's turn to the Word of God together. We are, we are finishing up the book of Mark. We have two more sections of the book of Mark. We're going to be in Mark 15, starting in verse 22. 
Um, next week, we're going to take a little bit of a break and be in the book of Daniel for just one week. And then when Pastor Mark returns, he's going to finish up the book of Mark for us in talking about the resurrection. Um, but this week, we have an opportunity to look at the crucifixion of Jesus. So as you're turning to Mark 15, let me ask you this question. Up to this point in your life, what is the most important day of your life? Up to this point in your life, what would you say is the most important day of your life? It usually has to focused around something that was big, something dramatic that happened in your life. So like for you guys, maybe the day you got your ex, first Xbox, that was pretty big. Um, that was maybe the best day of your life. If you're a married man in this room, the answer is most likely, most definitely, the day you got married, right? Men, this is your opportunity to shake your head, yes? Yes, the most important day of your life. Uh, if you have kids or grandkids, you could easily say the day my children were born, the day my grandchildren were born. Now, that's a, that's a typical answer for someone in this world. If we were to go to Target and ask that very question, we would receive similar answers. What's the most important day of your life? Usually, that answer would be accompanied by talking about something that is a defining moment in your life, something that literally defines you as a person. The day you became a husband, the day you became a father or a mother, a defining moment in your life. Now, when I asked that question, it should have been really quick that the answer popped into your head for you if you're a believer. The most important day was the day you gave your life to the Lord, the day the Lord reached out and saved you. That should be the most important day. And the reason why it should be the most important day, it is for me, and hopefully it is for you, is because it literally is the biggest defining moment that could be in your life. You have literally been redefined in every way. You have been changed in every way. You were once considered a sinner, now you're considered a saint. You were guilty and now you're deemed innocent you were a slave and now you're free blind but now you see transfer from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light from judgment to glory to enemy to child you were once dead in your sin now you're alive in Christ total redefining of your life your status of who you are because of Christ if you have believed in Christ then you've literally been redefined in every way so if the most important day of your life, which I hope it is, is the day that you gave your life to the Lord. It, wouldn't it follow that the most important day of all of history is the day that the Lord gave his life for you? And that's what we have the chance to talk about today. My hope for you this morning, just like that song that we sang a few songs ago, that through the understanding of what Jesus did on the cross through his affliction, you would realize just how beautiful he is and just how great his affections are for you. That that would motivate your heart to live for him. That's my goal here today, just to place Jesus in a lofty position for you to gaze at him. That's my only goal. So let me pray and then we'll jump into this passage together. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we could worship you. You're so worthy of worship for what you've done for us, Lord. And we are so unworthy people to be called your children. Thank you for redefining our lives. Thank you for changing us. Thank you for saving us. And thank you, most of all, for your son, Jesus Christ, and his payment on the cross that we get to look at today, Lord, and marvel at together. We thank you for your word. ask that you would speak it into our hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark 15, starting in verse 22. Let's read this. <clears throat> Then they brought him, Jesus, to the place Golgotha, which is translated place of a skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it, and they crucified him. 
and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots for them to decide what each man should take. It was the third hour when they crucified him. The inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the scripture was fulfilled which said, He was numbered with transgressors. Those passing by were hurling abuses at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves and saying, He saved others, yet he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama shabachthani, which translated means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister to him, and there were many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is the day before Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. He gathered up courage and went in before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time, and summoning the centurion, uh, he questioned him as to whether he had already died. And ascertaining from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph brought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in the tomb which had been hewn out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph were looking on to see where he was laid. Now, in studying this passage this week, I was struck with the simplicity of this passage. If this truly is the biggest defining moment in all of history you would think there'd be more detail given. The crucifixion itself is such a defining moment in all of history, and yet it is stated, and they crucified him. And that's all the information we have. I don't know about you, but when you have something big that goes into your life, it seems like we tend to embellish it with every possible detail of what we were wearing, what we were thinking, what we were smelling, and yet this is so simple. And so as we read the story, I, I was thinking, as I was studying, what, what is, what's going on here in the story? It's such a simple recounting of the events. But there's so much behind each one of these verses that the way I'm going to do this this morning is I'm just going to go verse by verse and I'm going to try to explain and shed light on the simplicity of the story so that you may see what's happening behind this story, the simple retelling of the story. So with that, let's look at verse 22. And we're going to just jump right into this and make our way through this passage says in verse 22, they brought him, Jesus, to a place called Golgotha, which is translated the place of a skull. If you remember from last week, the Jewish authorities bound Jesus and brought him before Pilate. Though he was innocent, he was condemned to death. 
with shouts of crucify him, crucify him. He was struck, spit on, mocked. Jesus, being falsely accused by his own people, tried and convicted and sentenced to death, is made to carry his own instrument of torture to the place of his death outside of the city, Golgotha, where he would be crucified. Verse 23 says, And they tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, wine mixed with myrrh was given to temporarily deaden pain. It functioned as a primitive narcotic, doling the senses. The Romans allowed people who were being crucified to take this wine mixed with myrrh so that they wouldn't fight them in the process of being crucified. Obviously, no one wanted to be crucified, so they would fight the soldiers, so they would give them this, not out of compassion, but to make their lives easier as they were doing it. You would think, given the amount of pain and suffering that Jesus had already endured, that he would have taken this. But it clearly says in the passage, he did not take it. While other people would have struggled while being nailed to the cross, Jesus did not. While others tried to escape from the torment of crucifixion, Jesus did not. Jesus did not struggle because Jesus was not forced on the cross. He went willingly to the cross. Some people look at Jesus on the cross and think of it as foolishness. The world thinks of Jesus on the cross as foolishness. They say, how can your God, if he is God and he's powerful, let himself be taken forcibly and be executed and killed? If your God's not strong enough to stop that, then how is he God? But overwhelmingly, the scripture talks about how Jesus wasn't forced on the cross. He went willingly to the cross, willfully to the cross. Not under force, not under coercion, but on his own accord. He didn't make a defense at his trial. He did not shrink away from the pain and the punishment. He did not attempt to escape it, evade it, flee from it, to run. He faced it full on. Jesus bore the full punishment and pain for your sin willingly and without help. He was not going to do it in an altered state with the effects of a primitive narcotic he intentionally, intentionally and consciously and willfully suffered and died for you. Verse 24 simply states, And they crucified him and divided up his garments among themselves, casting lots to decide what each man should take. It's fascinating to me that n- none of the gospel writers talk about the crucifixion. All it says is, and they crucified him. They all kind of say the same thing. There's no detail given of what the crucifixion is. Now, there's two reasons for that. Either it's not important or... Everybody back then knew what crucifixion was. I'm assuming it's the second one, that everybody knew the horrors of crucifixion so intimately that it was unnecessary to say. Now, I'm not going to go into all the details of crucifixion, but essentially what happened was uh, someone would be nailed to a cross through their hands and through their feet and left hanging in the sight of everybody to slowly and painfully suffer and die and then hang there until they decided to take them down. To clarify this, I did this last service, and I'll do it again. Have you heard the controversy whether Jesus was nailed here in his hands or here in his, in his wrist? Uh, it's really easy if you understand the Greek. In English, this is a hand, this is a forearm, and this is an arm. In Greek, this is a hand, from here to here, and this is the arm. So when they say Jesus was nailed by his hands, it's 
it's, it's clearly here. That would make sense, and that's probably the most likely place. Jesus was crucified on a cross. The soldiers divided up his garments. Clothing was uh, not easy to come by in Jesus' day. So part of the payment that the people that had to do this crucifixion, part of the payment they would get would be to get the clothes or the garments of the person being crucified as part of their payment. Jesus was stripped, shamed through his nakedness. He was shamed so that we would not need to be. This shameless Son of God took on our shame. It says it was the third hour when they crucified him in verse 25. In John's Gospel, we learn that Jesus was um, at the trial at 6 a.m. That's when they sentenced him to death at 6 a.m. Now, the third hour is about 9 a.m. So for three hours, he has been beaten and mocked and spit on and scorned on his way to his execution site. Verse 26 says, The inscription of the charge against him read, King of the Jews. It was the Roman custom to, if someone was going to be executed for a, a, a capital offense, a crime against Rome, that they would take a wooden board and they would inscribe the offense on a wooden board and as they were on their way to the execution site they would take that board on a rope and place it around the person's neck as they paraded them up to the site of their death or they would have someone carry it for them and then as soon as they got to the site they would take that board and they would nail it to the top of the cross so that all who passed by could see the charge that was made against the person being executed. There's no doubt that Pilate who had this inscription written King of the Jews did this as an insult to the Jews at the time. He believed Jesus was innocent and they forced him to murder an innocent man. And so he wrote this as, a, as, a, as an insult to the Jews. But what's interesting is Pilate unwittingly proclaimed the truth of what Jesus really was. The irony of this is that Jesus is actually being executed on the basis of a wrong understanding of the actual truth. Jesus was the actual king of the Jews, but not in the manner which they anticipated. They anticipated the king of the Jews to come in with a sword and overthrow the Roman government to conquer, not to be conquered. Jesus came as one who would be conquered first, not by the Romans, but that he would face punishment and payment for sin first before he came as a conquering king. Verse 27 says, They crucified two robbers with him. One on his right, one on his left. And the scripture which is fulfilled, which says, and he was numbered with transgressors. With Jesus are crucified two robbers. We don't know who these robbers are. It doesn't say who they are. We have a little bit more information about John and what happened, but we don't have it here. The word robber in Greek and, uh, is often used by the popular Jewish historian Josephus to talk about zealots. A zealot is a, is, they're a group of Jews who uh, believe that the right way of reclaiming Israel from Roman oppression was through the use of force. They wanted to reclaim the nation of Israel through rebellion. The word translated robbers in this context probably means insurrectionists or rebels. Most likely, they were probably involved with Barabbas, the man who was released in the re- for, for his rebellion. They're probably connected with him, though we're not certain of that. What I find most interesting about this verse is an actual illusion that it gives to another passage in Mark. So if you have your Bibles, turn back a few chapters to Mark 10, verse 35. 
It's a story of Jesus on his way to Jerusalem and his disciples, two in particular, come and ask him a question. It says this in John 10.35, James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do whatever we ask of you. That's not a good start. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? They said to him, Grant that we may sit, one on your right hand and one on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? They said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink you shall drink and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. But to sit on my right or on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those whom it has been prepared. James and John had asked Jesus to sit at their, his right and left hand in his glory. In such positions, Jesus remind them, are not positions of honor first. They're, they entail trials and ordeal that include a cup and a baptism. The cup that he's referring to is probably the same cup that he referred to in the Garden of Gethsemane when he says, Father, remove this cup from me, the cup of God's wrath that he was going to have to drink for the payment of sin. The baptism that he was going to have to face was the baptism of death. And while he did say that James and John would go through this, he said not in the way that they had asked. He was going to spare them from the way he was going to have to endure that cup and that baptism on the cross. There are a lot of clues and mark that Jesus' crucifixion is the first stage of his glory. So we always think of Jesus' glory as when he's resurrected. But the cross was his first stage of his royal enthronement as king. He was glorified and he started that process while he was on the cross. What I find even more fascinating about this passage, I just think it's, it's, it's funny actually, is that if you look at another parallel account of what happens in Mark 10 with James and, James and John asking Jesus this question, you find out that it's actually their mom, Salome, who actually initiates this, this question. She said, go ask Jesus. What's interesting is that Salome is here at this scene watching from a distance Jesus be sacrificed and crucified with one on his right and one on his left. The very thing that she asked and had her children go and ask of Jesus for their sake. I don't know exactly what to take out of that, but it makes me wonder as a parent, um, we desire so much for our children to be successful, to be popular, to be prominent, to have a good position, to have places of honor. And sometimes that's not what God says is best for them. It makes you wonder what you're asking God for, if that's really God's will for your children, or if that's what your desires are for them. So to recap already, Jesus is falsely accused, the innocent one is charged as guilty, he is beaten for hours, led to his death, cast out of a city, He's publicly shamed, put on display for all to see, crucified, cursed by hanging on a tree, and numbered with guilty sinners. And if that's not enough, it says in verse 29, those passing by were hurling abuses at him, wagging their heads and saying, Ha, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. That, that phrase, hurled insults, in Greek is blaspheme. It's the word for blasphemy which in every Greek and Hebrew context is really is talking about speaking evil against God. So it's saying these people were, were literally blaspheming, which is ironic. It makes the chief priests, who do the same thing in the next verse, guilty of the very thing Jesus was condemned for by the Sanhedrin. 
They condemned him for blasphemy against God, claiming to be God, and yet this charge against them is saying they are literally speaking evil against God, Jesus on the cross. It says they're wagging their heads, a gesture of contempt on the cross. Psalm 22, verse 7 and 8 say, All who sneer at me, they separate with the lip, they wag the head, saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. Psalm 109.25 says, I also have become a reproach to them. When they see me, they wag their head. Jesus is fulfilling Scripture even in the response to Him on the cross from the people. They repeat the charge that was made against Him that He would destroy the temple and build it up in three days. That's back from Mark 1458 says, We heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another made without hands. That's the charge they levied against him. Jesus did say a version of that in John 2. He said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It took 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. And says he was speaking of the temple of his body. So they're insulting him. And it says in the same way, verse 31, the chief priests also, along with the scribes, were mocking him among themselves, saying, He saved others, yet he cannot save himself. Let this Christ, the King of Israel, now come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him were also insulting him. Let him come down from the cross so that we may see and believe. Here is the final demand for a sign, for a miracle from the Jewish unbelieving authorities at the time. The very demand for a sign or a miracle from God is, is, is a mark of unbelief, evidence of unbelief. The, the faith Mark wants us to have in reading this gospel is not compelled by sight. It's compelled and evoked by the person of Jesus specifically on the cross. The, the taunt that they're giving assumes that salvation of self, perseverance of self, is the greatest good. They say the surest vindication that the would-be Messiah is, is the Messiah is that he would save himself because that's the ultimate good, to save yourself. Jesus, however, has not taken upon himself the mission of self-salvation, self-help, self-fulfillment. Instead, Jesus will be a ransom for others. This reminded me of a survey that was taken a while back that I just think is really funny. Um, There is a list of uh, verses that were put together for uh, people. And um, people went around and they they asked uh, just anybody out there what your favorite Bible verse was. And it came back overwhelmingly that people's most beloved Bible verse was this, God helps those who help themselves. Which you should know is not in the Bible. They thought it was. The culture around us is, is shamefully promotes and is obsessed with this idea that serving oneself Helping oneself, promoting oneself is the highest good. Whatever you can do to get you to the highest place of position and authority and honor is the best thing that you can do for yourself. That stands in stark contrast to what the Bible actually teaches. And that Jesus so appropriately models for us. That greater love has no man than this, that one laid down his life for his friends. The greatest good 
is actually the opposite of self-promotion. It's laying one's life down, sacrificing for the sake of another. That's the example we're given. It was precisely because Jesus refused to save himself that he was able to save others. That taunt that Jesus was given to come down from the cross, it reminds you of Gethsemane where he he asked to avoid the cup of his suffering. But there in Gethsemane, he made the choice, which he now fulfills, to do the will of God rather than his own will, rather than man's will. It is his own will, but rather than man's will. A commentator said it this way. I think it's well put. In this haunting picture of Jesus, fastened to a cross and assailed in mockery, we see proof of the amazing difference between God's way and everything which men consider their goal or conceive of as being God's way. There is no self-defense from Jesus, no effort to get even or get the final word in, no attempt to persevere at least a modicum of dignity and pride. Jesus surrenders in total vulnerability to the malevolence and violence of the world. So let me ask you this question. In what way are you convincing yourself that the easy way is God's way? In what way are you defending your desires to be safe and secure and comfortable in this life when God may be asking you to do what is risky and uncomfortable for his sake? It is so easy for us to determine what God's will for our life is based off of what's simple, what's comfortable, what's practical. Many, many times God is not asking us to do what's simple and comfortable and practical. He's asking us to do what's risky. He's asking us to do the hard thing, to live for him. What things are you defending in your life that you need to think about? It says in verse 33 that when the sixth hour had come, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Jesus was tried and convicted at 6 a.m. He was crucified at 9 a.m. and now at noon, three hours later, darkness encompasses the whole land for three hours. This darkness is to symbolize God's judgment that's about to incur on Jesus for the payment of sin. Darkness is commonly associated with judgment in the Old Testament in particular. It says in verse 34, at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a direct quote from Psalm 22. It says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. As darkness falls over the land, God's judgment is about to be unleashed upon Jesus. Jesus is feeling the full weight of the payment of penalty for bearing your sin on the cross. And in this moment, Jesus says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That word forsaken means to, be, to separate connection with someone or something. To separate. To have separation. To abandon. To desert. So in this moment, Jesus felt and was keenly aware that he had been abandoned, separated from the Father. Now, we have, there's a lot of people who have a difficult time with this saying. They have a, a, a difficulty understanding what this means. People say, how, how can Jesus, who is by nature God, be abandoned by God? 
There's even a passage in the Bible that says God cannot forsake himself. How then can God abandon Jesus even for a moment? How does that make sense? What this passage is not saying, it's not saying that in this moment Jesus lost his divine status or position. It's not saying that Jesus stopped being God. Instead, what's being communicated here is that Jesus, while maintaining his divinity, is separated from his Trinitarian relationship with the Father. So it's going to get theological here for just a second. But remember, we believe that there is one God in essence and being that exists simultaneously in three distinct persons. So one in being or essence, but in three persons. Now those three persons exist in harmony and unity in relationship with one another. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have, from eternity past to this point, lived in perfect harmony and relationship with one another. Always divine, but three distinct relationships in which they relate to one another. So Jesus, in this moment, is separated from the relationship from his Trinitarian Father. He doesn't cease being God. He's separated from his relationship. Why? Because sin requires separation from God. God is holy and perfect in all of his ways, and no one that has any amount of sin whatsoever can stand before God. So if Jesus took on our sin, your sin and my sin, he had to be separated from his Father because God cannot be around the presence of sin. While Jesus bore our sins, the sins of our world, God could not be with him. He was literally abandoned not only by his disciples, but also by his heavenly Father. Another commentator said this. He said, Psalm 22 reverberates throughout this crucifixion account. If you have a chance to read Psalm 22, um, read the whole thing. It's really quite remarkable. And the present quotation identifies Jesus with the righteous one who suffers without cause, rejected and scorned by Israel, sacrificed as a political pawn by Rome, denied and abandoned by his own followers. Jesus is wholly forsaken and exposed to the horror of humanity's sin. Its horror is so total that in his dying breath he senses his separation even from God. The most horrific consequence of your sin is separation from God. It's the first consequence of the first sinners and it's the ultimate consequence of being separated from the relationship that you were made for, the relationship with your Heavenly Father. Jesus bore on himself the awful consequence of human sinfulness before God so that any who come in faith in him, come to faith in him, might be set free from those consequences. In other words, Jesus faced total and complete abandonment and separation from the Father on your behalf so that you would not have to. Jesus was forsaken for you so that you would no longer be forsaken by God on the basis of your sin. Jesus, the righteous Son of God, took on your sin so that you, the sinner, could take on His righteousness. A complete transaction. Redefining moment. You and I deserve to be separated from God because of our sin. And yet, He took on our sin so that we would not be separated from God any longer. When the people heard Jesus cry out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They, some of the bystanders said, Behold, He is calling Elijah. 
The people are thinking, if this is really the righteous servant of God, then God must rescue him from the suffering of his death. So they assume, well, well maybe Elijah is going to come and rescue him. They believe that Elijah did not die, which it says he did not in Second Kings 2. It says that Elijah was taken up. He did not face death. And so they assume that Elijah is supposed to come back, it was a tradition at the time, and save those who were suffering but who were righteous. So they assume he's calling for Elijah. But God's plan for redemption, his plan was to have the righteous one suffer and die, not be rescued. That was his plan. After the people assumed that he's calling for Elijah, someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him saying, let us see whether Elijah will come down and come and take him down. They were hoping to see a miracle, so they gave him something to preserve his life just for a few more moments, just so that they could see this great miracle happening. But in looking for a miracle in their own terms, they miss the miracle of the cross. That was right before them. We do this all the time. We ask for a sign that God has revealed. God, show me that you understand me. Show me that you hear me. God, show me that you love me. Do this particular thing that I'm saying you should do, and if you do, we will believe in you. Just like the Jews asked in this story, just like these people asked, show me something so that I could have confidence that you are real. And God is standing there pointing and saying, I have. I've given you the best sign there is. Jesus on the cross, right there in front of you. It says in verse 37, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Does anybody know how um, someone dies from crucifixion? It's the actual cause of death. Suffocation. Yeah. Uh, without going into too much de- detail, the reason why is because uh, they would, the way that they would nail someone on the cross... Um, it was difficult to breathe with your arms splayed out like this. And so every time you take a breath, it takes a full effort of you pulling up, using your muscles, or pushing up with your, hands, with your hands and feet to take a breath. Every time you breathe, you would have to pull up every single breath. You've got nails, remember, through your feet and in your hands. So it's great, immense pain that you're feeling every single breath. And slowly over time, you just get so fatigued that you can no longer pull up. So every breath becomes all of your might pulling up, pulling up, and pulling up until you no longer have the strength to pull up to take a breath and you eventually, slowly suffocate and die. It's a long process. It usually took days, days and days and days of hanging on the cross for someone to die. A slow, slow death. Is this the way that Jesus died? Mark's account suggests that Jesus' death was not slow, but sudden and violent. That he was still quite strong at the moment of his death. Strong enough that he voluntarily and deliberately died with the shout of victory. He had enough strength to pull himself out and give a solid shout. And at that moment, he died. Jesus demonstrated amazing strength in his last moment in light of the intense suffering that he was undergoing, revealing again that his life was not taken from him. His life was given. At that moment, he relinquished his life. It wasn't taken. He relinquished it for you. He gave it over for you. 
He did it willingly, voluntarily for you and for me. And at that moment, it says that the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The veil of the temple is this massive two-foot-wide curtain that separates the Holy of Holies, the place where the Ark of the Covenant and God's presence would dwell, with the rest of the sanctuary in the temple. It could only be entered once a year by the high priest after many, many sacrifices were made. He would enter in and there was only one time you could get in there to be in the presence of God. If you had, came in with any sin whatsoever that wasn't atoned for, you'd be struck down dead. And then one time a year, one man can enter in. This massive two-foot-thick curtain at the moment of Jesus' final cry was ripped completely from top to bottom, opening the way in between the sanctuary and God, between the people where people worshipped and God. Jesus literally became the sacrifice that opened up the way for God. He was forsaken and separated by God, and through that now, we are no longer separated by God. He has made the way for us to be in the presence of God. Verse 39, when the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the son of God. The centurion had seen countless people die of crucifixion probably but none like Jesus. The strength that he possessed at the end is evidenced by that loud cry was unheard of from a victim of crucifixion. The centurion confessed not because he saw a miraculous sign, but because he saw the cross. It was Jesus' death on the cross that convinced him, not a miracle, but Jesus' death on the cross that convinced him that he was the Son of God. Now Mark's purpose in his gospel is that we would know that Jesus is the divine son of God. Up until this point in the gospel, all the way in the last last section of this book, this is the first time that anybody makes that declaration. Peter declared that he was the Christ, but probably thought of him as the Christ who would come as a conquering king. This is the first time that Mark's gospel, his purpose is fulfilled and it's fulfilled in this person. People misunderstood who Jesus was constantly, but when they look at the cross, they see clearly who he is, that he is the divine Son of God. It's ironic that while Jesus is alive, humanity wills for his death, yet it's only in his death that humanity can see him as the way of life. No one saw that before he died. The death of Jesus on the cross is not a defeat but the consummation of his mission and the climactic revelation of his, of his identity as the Son of God. Verse 40 says, There are some women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they used to follow him and minister him, and there were many other women who came with him to Jerusalem. John tells it that these women, who were at the foot of the cross, Mark says they now go far away at a distance probably because the scene of crucifixion is too much for them to witness true they were watching from a distance but even a distance is is better than absence for all the big talk of the guys of the men about loyalty to Jesus to the point of death in the end it was the women who saw it through women who traditionally in this culture are associated with weakness in this crisis were stronger than the men women do with that what you will later verse 42 
43, when evening had come, because it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and went before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea, it says, was a member of the Sanhedrin, the council that actually put Jesus to death. But it says he's a righteous man, someone who's waiting for the kingdom of God. And it's clarified in the parallel passage in Luke 23 that, that Joseph did, he had not consented to their plan of action. This statement that Joseph went boldly before Pilate should not be taken lightly because to be associated with someone who was convicted of treason against Rome was not a good thing. Also, I'm sure Pilate would not want to see another member of the Sanhedrin who had just convinced him to crucify an innocent man. And then above and beyond that, he's making a public identification with Jesus which would have made the Sanhedrin very upset with him. Probably Mark intends this story of Joseph Joseph, to be an example to us, the readers, to act boldly on behalf of Jesus. It was a risk that Joseph took to do this, to do the hard thing, to honor his God. Verse 44, Pilate wondered if he was dead by this time. Remember, it usually took days and days and days for Jesus to die. It had only been six hours. And summoning the centurion, he questioned him to whether he had already died. And ascertaining from this centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Joseph brought, bought a linen cloth, took him down, wrapped him in the linen cloth, and laid him in the tomb, which he, began to, which he had been hewed out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, were there looking on to see where he was laid. Some have suggested that Jesus didn't die at all, that he just swooned on the cross due to the heat and uh, passed out and uh, then was awoken by the coolness of the tomb. If you ever heard that, you, might, you clearly don't know anything about Romans. Um, they were not ones to not know what death looked like. When they declared someone dead, he, he was dead. There's multiple witnesses, even in this account. The Romans say Jesus was dead, he was dead. Now, there's a lot of information here, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to summarize this for you so you can get a, a good picture of the details here. <clears throat> Though Jesus was led to the site of his execution by Roman soldiers, he went willingly and of his own accord. Though offered something to dull the pain of what was to come, he denied it, choosing instead to endure all the pain that accompanies the punishment of your sin. The righteous, innocent, true king of Israel was condemned to death with a sign over his head that revealed the truth of who he was. He was mocked by the crowd, by the Jewish authorities, and even those who hung guilty beside him. They demanded a sign that he would come down from the cross and save himself. But he chose to stay on the cross, to fulfill God's plan, and to offer himself up so that he might save others. And on the cross, he endured the full measure of God's wrath and punishment for the sins of the world. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the last drop. Not only being punished, but also facing separation from the Father on account of our sin. Totally forsaken for you. When the fullness of the weight of humanity's sin was paid for, he gave up his life. It was not taken from him. With a shout of victory, he proclaimed that his work, his purpose, and his mission were finished. At the moment of his death, fully separated from the Father, 
the veil of the temple was torn completely, removing the separation between us and God. Jesus became the sacrifice required for us to enter into the presence of God. Seeing Jesus on the cross, some mocked, some wept, some watched from a distance. But one saw more than just a dead man. He saw the true nature of Jesus on the cross. He saw him as the divine Son of God. While this man confessed, another man boldly acted, stepping into what was a dangerous and risky situation to honor his Lord and King. If this is true, church, how do we respond? Are we to see Jesus on the cross and flee? Like his disciples? Are, are we to watch from a distance? Are we to simply just weep? Or are we to boldly confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of God? The righteous one who takes away the sins of the world. That he became sin on our behalf. Making payment for penalty of your sin. Are we to boldly respond to this truth by stepping into situations that may be difficult in order to bring honor and glory to our Lord. It is my desire that I would be motivated by the gospel so much that I would not think of what matters to me, how to preserve my life and what matters to me, but to only do what Christ would ask of me based on what he did. The gospel and what Jesus did becomes my motivation for how I live for Christ. And it should be our mission too as we recall the gospel, as we think about this story of him dying on the cross for our sin, it should motivate us to say, if he did that for me, what now should I do for him? Whatever he asks. Even if that's risky. Even if that's challenging. Because he did not shrink away from the pain of facing your sin. You should not shrink away from giving him your whole life and devotion. I pray that for you guys in this church, that you would not shrink away, that the gospel would motivate you into a life of worshiping and loving your Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for this story, for this true reality of how you paid for our sin in full, how you did not shrink away, how you did not turn aside, how you bore the full weight of our sin and the full punishment of God's wrath on our behalf so that we would not have to and Lord, you ask of us now that we would live lives fully committed and devoted to you, that we would follow you with our whole heart, that we would not think of what's best for ourselves, but think of how we can serve and love others for your sake and for your glory. We ask that you would give us the strength to be people who love you and serve you faithfully because of what you've done, because you loved us first, and you showed that to us so clearly on the cross. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for your Son. And we ask that you would put his work in our hearts every day that we may be motivated and encouraged to live for him. We thank you in Jesus' name.